us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Amen. Man, just reading that just ah, brings uh, such a, a, an inspiration to my soul. Paul begins with uh, these statements. Now about food, sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So he is addressing an issue that came up in the Corinthian church. The issue about food sacrificed to idols. You see, the Corinthians were very familiar with the, the whole sacrificial ritual and protocol involving idol worship. This way of sacrificing to gods was an integral part of the ancient life, not only for the Jews, but the whole empire. And um, what I'm going to tell you right now are some details about this way of sacrifice in those days. And it is very much based upon William Barclay's commentary on 1 Corinthians. Have you ever read William Barclay's commentary? One of my favorites. It's short and precise, but it's quite lengthy and descriptive in, in describing the context of those days. And he is very good at that. Sometimes I wonder where his source is. I don't know where he's gotten it. But he has so much vast knowledge regarding the context of the early church and of the context of the ancient days. And so I'm 
purely relying upon that. I was even thinking about reading a page from his commentary, but I tried to explain this. First of all, the sacrifices were of two types, private and public. The private sacrifice comprised of dividing up the animal, the meat, into three parts. One part was given as a token, as a burnt offering on the altar. Second part, perhaps the best of the parts, and the priests really had a, a choice in this matter, they would receive their rightful portion. And then the third part would be returned to the, the worshiper. And the worshiper can take the meat now that has been dedicated to a god through the idol, and now he can use it for any kind of banquet. So this kind of sacrifice was done in the house of the host or usually in the temple of their god. The problem confronting the Christian was this. Could Christians partake in this kind of feast? I mean, this is the common cultural context, but can Christians engage in this kind of feast, attend a temple worship, even though they are not bowing down to idols, can they at least enjoy the feast when their non-believing friends would invite them to their temple or to their house and they are serving these sacrificial meats. For Christians not to get engaged at all would simply mean that they are going to be cut off from any kind of social connections and they just cannot engage in anything real and social in the context of Corinth. So that's the problem. Now regarding the public sacrifice, now this sacrifice was offered by the state. Once again, a portion was to be given as a token and burnt at the altar of their God. Next portion was given to the priests because they can claim their rightful portion. And then the rest was given to the magistrates and others. And once those are divided, if these leaders of the community decide that they don't really need to you know, hold on to these meat, then they can actually sell them to shops and markets. So practically all kind of meat were somehow dedicated to some god or some demons. And no one knew what they were eating. No one knew the source. It's not like they, they brand them and, and put a label on it and says, this was sacrificed to you know, God Apollos or, or God Diana or Goddess Diana. No, nothing like that. Or some demon, household demon. And so Christians who are meat lovers are going to definitely have a dilemma. Because when they go to the market, practically all of them have been, been dedicated to some kind of idol. And so how are they going to feast on meat? They can raise them themselves or they can uh, you know, cultivate a way of producing meat. But that was usually not the case. They had to depend upon the pagans for that. And to make the matter even worse, more complicated, 
This entire society in those days, they strongly believed in demons. They believed that the demons were constantly lurking around, trying to, you know, penetrate into the bodies and the minds of the people. And one of the ways that they would do that is through the means of food. And so, because they were superstitious, they felt that the food has to be somehow dedicated to a good God. If it's not going to be tainted by some demon or some evil God. And so they had all these complicated ways of going through the rituals and, and trying to sort of soothe their sense of conscience. And, and because they were so engrossed in the superstitious way of operation. And this is not something new. We see even in our own country. You know, people give ancestral worship and, and sometimes they bow down to the demon spirits. We see that kind of form underlying our Confucianistic society and also the shamanic society. We have a lot of superstitions about that. So I don't think anybody in his or her right mind would go, go and say, hey, you know, that's, that was just sacrificed to a demon spirit. Let me have a, a portion of that and because I'm hungry. I wouldn't, would you? We as the church here in Korea, we have learned to stay away from all that form. But what if the market is owned by the society in general? And the pagans are the ones who are selling the meat. What do we do in a situation like that? So the problem that is critical is whether a Christian may participate in that kind of feast and eat such meat that have already been sacrificed to idols. And this is the context of chapter 8 and also chapter 10. Paul is going to address this issue once again and he takes a little bit of a different approach there. But he, he comes to the same conclusion. And so that's why I am going to devote two weeks to study this chapter, chapter 8. And then when we get to chapter 10, I will give a sort of an encore message on that. Paul says, we know that we all possess knowledge in verse 1b. What is this knowledge that Paul is talking about? The word for knowledge in Greek is gnosis. And it's simply defined as knowledge, but there's something much more to that because you might have heard this form of religious expression called Gnosticism. Okay? And Gnostics basically believed that there was some kind of a esoteric knowledge, a secret knowledge that you really have to understand in order to understand what is happening all around them. The world revolves around this central knowledge and they wanted to get at this knowledge. And oftentimes they will try to get at this knowledge through what is called entering into mystery, a ritual whereby they would feast and they would dine and eat and they would have access to that kind of knowledge. But here Paul, I believe, when he's saying that we all possess knowledge, he's basically addressing these two particular groups that he's been addressing all along. This one group, they were the legalists, they were the rigorists, they were aesthetics. And their policy is basically, what does the law say? What does rules and regulations and 
principal state. And let's abide by that. You might even say they were more like left brain type of people, you know, like very structured and they like to be told what to do. And sometimes very narrow and very dogmatic. Let's do this. No meat. Any meat that has been sacrificed to idols that is, uh, that is pagan. So we should have nothing to do with that. Then we have those libertinists, those who are very licensed, very loose, very permissive, the liberals in those days, you might say. Okay. For them, it's what freedom says. It's what their rights dictate. And this is the type of Gnosticism I think Paul is really addressing here. These people are thinking that way, thinking that as long as they have this special knowledge and understanding, then they're free. They should not be bound by any other restrictions. Restrictions about food, restrictions about sex, restrictions about mode of operation in life. So Paul says, we know that we all possess knowledge. What kind of knowledge do you possess? What do you feel like you have a handle on? It could be cognitive knowledge, book learning, information that you tap into through the internet, or it could be some kind of esoteric knowledge, a sort of intuitive, prophetic word that you might have. Whatever it may be, Apostle Paul says in verse 1c, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And it's so true. Knowledge tends to cause us to be puffed up. Not that knowledge itself is evil, not that knowledge itself should be associated with pride, not necessarily so, because there are a lot of humble people who have tremendous amount of knowledge. They don't necessarily have to puff up, but the tendency is when we have so much knowledge and the knowledge continues to expand, it's like a balloon. Okay. But what's, what's the problem with the balloon? It looks good outside, but inside it's just hot air. It's empty. It doesn't have the substance. And that's the problem. When we have so much knowledge and we don't build up substance within, we don't have the character to match that. Or we don't have the wisdom of, that comes from experience of that knowledge. Then it becomes kind of a facade. But we're living exactly in the society where we highly elevate degrees and honor that comes from being educated from the university. Uh, type of setting. The Koreans are notorious for that. What school did you go to? What degree do you have? You know, what kind of education have you received? But the thing is, are they really practical education? I've been teaching in the seminary setting for all these years, and I've realized that a lot of the things that we're teaching will never ever be used in real life. And I don't know why we continue to dump this knowledge into the minds of the people when they're not, never going to use it. Preachers, how much are we going to take from the seminary learning and really apply? Not much. Maybe 10%. Maybe about 10% or so. Because, you know, preaching the Word of God is not just looking at commentaries, looking at all these theological books. It's just reading the Bible and really coming to terms with that. We've got tons of our own stories and wonderful illustrations from all over the world that we can use to proclaim the gospel. 
So Paul is not against knowledge per se. He's against knowledge with that kind of presumption, thinking that if you know something, then you must be something. In opposition, he says love, on the other hand, builds up. Love has a way of putting substance into you, building up your character. Yes, love can expand too, but it expands along with inner quality. And so love deposits, love empowers others. And I don't think I need to elaborate on this. You, you probably met a lot of people who, who are all talks and all thoughts and all concepts and knowledge and they have information from internet here and there. And we're impressed. Wow. I know a few people like that who are like encyclopedia. I mean, like, oh, that person, if I just talk to that person, that person has the latest news and has the latest theological understandings. And like, he, usually he, are a few steps ahead of all of us all the time. But what's the use? What's the use? There's no love. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 13. Paul devotes an entire chapter on love. And he, even there, he constantly speaks against this tendency that we have being puffed up with knowledge, thinking that we have something when we perhaps really do not. In verse 2, he says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. What he's saying is the knowledge by nature is always limited. We can never say, I know it all, unless you're God. We can never know it all because we're limited. And we have all kinds of blind spots. We have our biases, assumptions, presuppositions, our narrow tunnel vision of things. So that means knowledge cannot be fully trusted. And yet, we trust everything on knowledge. In addition to that, the media, in the name of knowledge and information and facts, they distort them. And we are so gullible as the public to buy them. Politicians make promises saying, well, the experts and the scientists and, and the economists, yeah, but how much can we believe any of that? Basically, it has come to this point in history that we have to do our own homework and investigation. Get the second opinion. Don't just receive what the doctor says. This doctor may say this, but this doctor only knows a part of that. You might have to try a few other doctors before you kind of get to a conclusion that, that maybe the whole picture is much more bigger and more serious than what this one particular doctor had to say. So let us remember that knowledge is always limited. We have all kinds of blind spots. We struggle with our biases, assumptions, presuppositions. And we, when we have to do with knowledge, are always wearing some kind of spectacle. And our spectacles are not pure. It's tainted. It's colored. Besides, there's always this particular danger related to knowledge. 
It's kind of like money. Money itself is not evil, but there's always danger and temptation related to money. You know that, right? I don't know of anybody with so much money who have remained pure in their motive. They said they're going to get, they're going to do it purely for God's glory. If God would just provide them with a million dollars, but once they attain a million dollars, somehow they seem to change. I hear from so many pastors when they're doing small church ministry, they say, gosh, when I, when I get a bigger church, I'm not going to do it like those mega church pastors who are arrogant. And yet, when you become a mega church pastor, you don't even realize how arrogant you got. My wife Esther points out to me there was a time when I was working at the relatively large church, and we're having a very successful ministry among the young singles and young married couples. And, and, uh, and this was a yuppie church, yuppie congregation. And uh, when I started out, I started out really humble, you know, barely struggling with uh, trying to communicate in Korean because the first ministry was in that church was to Korean young adults. So I have to speak in bilingual, basically. And I struggle with that. But I just humbly, it began with a, a really dwindling group. God gave me 40 people and it continued to dwindle every week to eight people. And then we started building it back up. And once it got built, the church recognized that. And so they promoted me to pastor their English congregation. And we had about 500 people at one time. We were just continuing to grow. grow. But Esther pointed out to me that uh, when I stand at the pulpit and I'm preaching, all dressed up with my necktie and my suit and you know, my hair in place and just with that image and, and so forth, you come across with sort of like chip on your shoulders. You, know? you, you walk around. You, you, she sensed that. I didn't sense it because I just kind of grew within. It became an ingrown thing. But now looking back, I can imagine myself, oh, just because I became a big name. And at the time, there was L.A. riots, so our church was a representative church, and they wanted to hear from me. People came to interview me. People wanted to know what my opinion was about the social context that was happening. But I think it was at that time I felt convicted. I, I just cannot continue operating this way. I felt like I lost my sense of innocence. I really wanted to do it Jesus' way. I really did. But I can't do it with so much at hand. And so at that time, I did the most ridiculous thing. I just resigned and started working with some seminarians, a dozen of them, and started from ground level up. It might have been the greatest mistake of my life. <laughs> but anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is we never know how having something, having resources like money, fame, knowledge, can cause us to become arrogant, having this you know, air of superiority, start looking down on those who are not up to par, and then ultimately losing 
heart of sensitivity and sympathy. Well, I would say that Paul would probably say that such knowledge that these Corinthians are claiming, they cannot be true knowledge. So we need to be wary about judging all things solely based on knowledge. We have to complement or supplement all our knowledge with love. We need more than head knowledge. We need more than esoteric spiritual knowledge. We need knowledge that is coupled with wisdom. That is to the degree that we, we really know it experientially, we should talk, we should speculate, we should be opinionated. Wisdom and humility, humility. More I know, hey, let's confess it, more I don't know. So we need to be humble. And then Paul is really advocating love because love is the way to really check everything out whether I am on the right path. I may have a, a, a several doctoral degrees. Okay? I may have written a dozen books. I may have access to all this grand knowledge about how the world is and how God is and how the kingdom of God is. But do I have love? If I don't have love, what kind of knowledge is that? It's a loveless knowledge. A lot of hot air, as though in a balloon. And then Paul says this amazing thing in verse 3. But whoever loves God is known by God. To know something and to even claim that you know God is one thing, but the greatest are those who are known by God. It's not how much you know God, but how much God knows you. And God acknowledges you. It's God's opinion of you. That's the important thing, not your own opinion of God. So only those who truly love God, and therefore we love others, these are the ones who are known by God. God is not impressed with our knowledge. Come on now. God is not impressed with knowledge. God, I, I finally got my doctorate degree. I wrote my book. I, I, I have all this knowledge that I want to distribute to others. God is not impressed. Human beings may be impressed. God is not. But what God is impressed is our acts of love and compassion. Because that's so godlike. That's so godlike. And then in verses 4 to 6, so then about eating food, sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. He's talking about the knowledge here, proper way of understanding the reality. An idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come 
and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. He says in verse 4b, We know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no God but one. Why is idol nothing? Because if there is no other God but one, then if He is true God, then rest is no God at all. If there are such little gods, a little lords, and maybe today we don't have the idols made out of metal or wood or stone, but we do have more dangerous idols, idols of human beings. You know, we literally call them idols here. You know, entertainers as artists, uh, uh, idols. Hmm. The great business successes. These billionaires, they are our idols. Mega church pastors, they are our idols. But they are not God. So we should not be deceived. So the knowledge of one true God versus all the idols put together, whatever gods or lords that they may represent, they don't come close to this one true God. And this truth, this knowledge of this one true God, that's going to save us. That's going to give us the perspective. Then he continues on. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. God is our origin and source from whom we came. At the same time, He's our purpose, our destiny, for whom we serve. So God is in control of our entire life, practically from beginning to the end. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And here, the key preposition is through. It is everything is through Jesus. Well, God is my source. God is my origin. God is my destiny. He's the real reason why I'm living. But all of these happens through Jesus Christ. So Jesus becomes the mediator between God and us humans. He's the means. So everything we do, we have to ask this question. Are we doing it through Jesus? Or maybe the more familiar term, with, are we doing it in the name of Jesus? Not just as a formality at the end of a prayer, but are we really doing everything with Jesus in mind? As though Jesus is the one who is carrying us through. And of course, let us not forget the Holy Spirit, because it is by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul says in verses 7 and 8, But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. There are many who are ignorant. Many in the church of Corinth were ignorant of this knowledge. 
They were still thinking of their pre-conversion way. Filled with all kinds of superstitious notions. They're still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think it, because it is sacrificed to God, it's defiled, it's impure. So the meat has been penetrated by demons. So eating those meat, you're going to get demonized. And Paul says it is because of their ignorance and their weak conscience. So in terms of truth, and reality, yes, those who feel that they can eat the meat fit into that frame of thought. But those who think it would be damaging to eat something like that, Paul is saying that they're operating with a weak conscience. Because the food itself has nothing directly to do with our relationship with God. It's just the means. And same thing with money too. Just because we've been blessed with like a lot of money doesn't mean, oh, God favors me and wow, now I'm nearer to God. My prayer has been answered. Not necessarily so. There are a lot of rich Christians out there who don't have that kind of faith. It may be a temptation from the devil for all I know. So whether it be food or money or degree or anything that God provides, it's His provision. Having access to that. All these do's and don'ts related to that, they don't really have anything to do directly with our relationship with God. And so in this particular Statement, I believe that Paul is reacting against the legalists and the rigorists and the ascetic tendency among the Corinthians to restrain Christian freedom. But we will see in chapter 10, he says some things against the libertinists, those who are licentious and permissive of loose way of thinking based upon their own rights to claim they can do whatever, Paul would not tolerate that. But in this context, when he says, but food does not bring us near to God, we are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's definitely talking to the legalists and the aesthetics. So what is Paul talking about here? Paul is talking about the essence of God versus the essence of demons. Food is not essential. Food is secondary. Yes, food is important because we will see that there are demons who can use that as the means. No doubt about that. We will study it in chapter 10. So I'm reserving that message for later time. But in essence, food is nothing. If you can have faith to believe that even if it has been sacrificed to demons, and perhaps even demon spirits are just really using that as a lure, if you have faith, it will not affect you. Paul was bitten by a poisonous serpent, and he had faith, and that poison did not have an effect upon him. 
But what is important here, all the way up to verse 8 in this section that we're studying, is that there are people who have weak conscience, who are ignorant, who are superstitious, and that's the level of faith they're operating in. And if they think this is damaging to them, it is damaging to them. And we have to be sensitive about that. Instead of trying to, you know, teach them and downplay their lack of faith by our superior knowledge, we believe in one true God. Everything, all demons and idols, they're false. They're nothing. God can crush them with His fist. And we just downplay and downtrod all these little faiths that people have. Paul says, no. How should we operate? Not use our knowledge as a leverage against them. If we can teach them and deliver them out of their ignorance, that's one thing. But that's going to take time. Meanwhile, we need to be patient with them and exercise love and start from the bottom up. Isn't this the whole story of incarnation? Jesus came to this world as a little baby, helpless little baby. He didn't come and say, like a superman flying into our atmosphere, I want you to be strong like me. This is the way of discipleship. No, he came as a helpless babe. And I'm going to identify with you. I understand you when you're helpless, when you're weak, when you're dependent, when you have to grow up, you have to mature. I am with you every phase of the way. This is the way of love. If we can get down to people's level, and help them up, build them up, encourage them. Last thing we want to do is just operate with knowledge. Jesus Christ had more knowledge than anybody. He was God incarnate. But he didn't use that to bang people on their heads. Say, wake up! How come you don't get it? No, he took time, 33 years of his life, devoted to this ridiculous, ignorant, superstitious people. As a matter of fact, he got a lot of superstitious, ignorant people for his disciples. Think about Peter, James and John and others. They're not the most bright and most intellectual of them all. They don't necessarily have the highest pedigree of them all. And yet Jesus selected them. He worked with them for three years, built them up. That's what ministry is about. Working with people who are ignorant. Working with people who are just really damaged in their way of thinking. I'm reminded of some people that I encounter in my school. Sometimes students, sometimes staff. Occasionally a, a professor or so. And you know, me also gaining knowledge, somehow I feel like I, I, have, I know more, so I tend to judge them, place them at a lower level, demeaning them. But one thing that I continue to hear from the Lord is, no, you receive them because I've delivered them to you so that you accept them. You have compassion on them. You be sensitive and, and persevere with them through the process. You help to build them up to the best of your ability. 
and leave the rest into my hands. So on this Christmas season, let us think about Jesus. Having all the knowledge, having all the wisdom, and yet he chose love and servanthood. So I'm going to come down to your level. Oh, you're so ignorant. You're so superstitious minded. You're so trembling in fear and doubt. Oh, you insecure one. I'm going to come for you. And I will help you. I will strengthen you. Because love builds up. Knowledge by itself can only puff up. And the time will come when God takes all of us who are puffed up in knowledge, He's going to take a needle and go pop. He's going to pop the balloon. And there's going to be nothing left. No substance. But if we are tested of our love, then He pricks it. Blood and love and true substance will ooze out of us. And that's in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.